It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I am here with Patrick Green from the great land of Chicago. Welcome, Pat. Hi, it's a pleasure to be on. I love, love Chicago sometimes of the year. You know, the first time I visited Chicago, it was in the middle of that, what was it, 2010, the really big blizzard? Uh, 2010, we had a big one. And 2014, we had another nasty one. So yeah. That's- yeah, it was 2010 and the snow was blowing upwards and it was just absolutely insane. And we were staying out by O'Hare and my husband is a pilot. And so he was listening to the air traffic control and it was really eerie because pretty soon there was zero chatter on the air traffic control. It was kind of surreal. That was the storm where Lakeshore Drive got shut down. Cars were abandoned. Buses were yes. abandoned. Yes, I remember that one. It was epic. Yes, that was my first visit to Chicago. So I wasn't sure I ever wanted to go back. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't know what to say. Uh, I was a minister for 16 years. I'm a dad of an amazing 20-year-old who's a junior in college. Uh, I do photography and I uh, have a column on Patheos uh, as an ex-minister. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, I hang out with my dog. He is my uh, shelter-in-place COVID companion. Nice. I just saw your dog in the background. Yeah, he was wandering around doing puppy things. What kind of a dog is he? He is a Jack Russell. Oh, cute. I have a completely, Mm -hmm. completely worthless um, mini schnauzer Sheltie, and uh, he's completely spoiled and obnoxious. (laughs) Well, this one has no off switch, even at 14. (laughs) Yes. So so let's tear apart a little bit about what you just shared. We're going to talk about your photography book and in a little bit and talk about photography. We've been trading emails about cameras and geeky mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> I'm also a photographer, um, although I've never written a book. So I, I'm not that professional, Pat. You probably are if you can endure weddings. Um, in my <laughs> case, this is this is the um, during 2020 um, photography gigs for me just shut down. Right. Uh, so I wanted to reinvent myself. I started attending uh, online seminars, sharpening up my game, realizing, you know, I've been doing this since 86. Maybe it's time to grow. And as an experiment, I did two limited edition zines. And then for this third photo book, I wanted to hire models, create a vision about coping skills versus society's expectations, and put some uh, lyrics to the music, if you will, and uh, write a proper book that you can ostensibly get through in about an hour. Um, It was fun. It was cathartic. And I'm hoping that the people that read it understand the beauty of themselves if they have mental health issues. Um, and for those that don't, 
but love somebody that does, I hope they have a new appreciation and maybe just back off a little. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just read um, the uh, summary of the book is um, it's called Portraits of Expectations, Coping Beauty. It says Pat Green explores the contrast and beauty of people when they're using coping skills as opposed to living under the pressures of societal expectations and stigma. He believes that true beauty lies in the diversity of experience and these societal expectations driven by stigma harm those who struggle. The author writes in an intimate and informal tone for those who are neurodivergent or have mental health conditions. So my first question is, what is the um, separation for you between neurodivergent and mental health conditions? What's the distinction there? Um, my distinction is not going to be scientific in any way, shape or form. Uh, but when I have bipolar, uh, which I don't have, but in my case, I have generalized anxiety disorder. I have PTSD. I have recurrent depression. Uh, these are things that need treatment. If somebody is uh, neurodivergent, such as they're somewhere on the autism spectrum, okay. um, what they need is they need understanding and acceptance. They're not broken. They don't have a condition. Um, I have something that needs treatment and therapy. They have something where they just tick different and we need a more understanding world towards that. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me. So talk to me about um, the contrast and beauty of people when they're using coping skills, as opposed to living under pressure of societal expectations. What does that mean to you? Okay. In this case, um, everybody has a face they put on. And when you have mental health conditions, that face is even or you're neurodivergent, uh, it's, it's, it's magnified uh, because you have to pretend to fit in to a world of round holes and you're just this mentally square peg. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever I was talking to the models, each model had a different expectation they had to live under. One is being the perfect mother. The other one is being the perfect corporate employee. Uh, and, and, what we experience is considered weakness by those other parties. And so you have to pretend that you're something that you're not to fit into this normative culture. And we stigmatize uh, people whipping out a stress ball or, or one of those fidget cubes. I love my fidget cube at my desk um, or whatever it is that we need to do to be able to cope when we are using that, that's controlling our racing thoughts, that's controlling our depression. We are taking control and that's a beautiful thing. And we stigmatize that. And by doing that, we're crushing beauty. So for me, uh, the compelling thing uh, when I'm doing street photography and when I did this project has always been who people are when no one is looking and they're content mm. because that's where the beauty is. Um, and for doing this project with the models, uh, back in the day, in a strange lane called the 90s, I used to work for this organization, which I'm sure you remember, called Glamour Shots. Ah, and yes. I did portraits for Glamour Shots when I was in Bible college. And what was funny about that was it was an exercise in homogeny. Um, we had eight outfits that were all Velcroed on in the back. We had contour makeup techniques. 
that we did the same environment on everybody. And yes. I also did uh, school portraits and all of those, it was sent into clones. Cookie so cutters. With, yep. Yeah. So with the portraits, I didn't put on my A game. I micromanaged portraits and I stressed the models out with the micromanagement. And I only kept the shots where the smile didn't exactly go all the way up to the eyes. And then I would leave the room, let them change their outfit, decompress, use their coping skills. And then I would come back in and I was no longer directing anything. I was no longer in control of the lighting. All I was doing is much like I do when I'm in street photography mode. And that's capture people as they are when they mm. are. And those were the more beautiful and compelling photos. And I think that's a reflection of society. If we just let people be, they'll be beautiful. If we control them and try to force them to fit into a mold, that mold, I, we're, we're no longer a culture based on factory workers. Mm -hmm. and, and there's nothing wrong with factory work, but what I mean by that is that homogeneity needs to be busted and people need to be allowed to be who they are. Right. And I'm waiting for the day that churches, employers, um, and even families begin to embrace people better. Right. You know, it's so true that, um, like you said, if somebody uses a coping school skill, especially some kind of an external tactile coping skill, like you said, stress balls, Play-Doh, you know, anything like that, it's kind of frowned upon or seen as seen as negative. Whereas if somebody has an insulin pump, you would never think of turning an eye towards towards negative of negativity towards that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we treat people with a completely different standard than we treat a diabetic, than we treat somebody with MS, than we treat a uh, 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 grandma or grandpa with their uh, colostomy bag. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and and as a person who who struggles with mental illness myself, um, I think that just creates a culture of shame where we, we try to hide, like you say, put on the face and, and we try to hide what's, what's going on because we feel shamed by that, by society to, um, to hide that when it's an integral part of who we are, body, soul, mind, and spirit. It's a part of who we are. Well, yeah. And when I was a minister, um, at least from the spiritual tradition that I came from, mm -hmm. uh, Weakness on the pastor, and, and I say weakness with quotes, was just not allowed. I had to accept everybody at where they were at, how they were at. Mm -hmm. But if I showed just a simple ounce of the fragility of humanity, that was not allowed. Right. Well, and I was raised, you and I have talked about it. We were raised in the same, in the same denomination mm -hmm. and in the same, in the same history. And, um, I certainly never heard any conversation about, um, mental health, depression. I mean, I heard about those things, but it was all, you know, the pray harder, pray better, pray faster, pray more, you know, um, it was all about our frenzy doing of religion that was supposed to make everything better rather than an acceptance of this is where I'm at right now. And I believe that God is a part of my life, irregardless of where I am at this very moment. He's, a, you know, intricately part of my, my day-to-day -day life. 
I remember when I was a youth pastor, there was a senior pastor that I was working for who said from the pulpit, uh, people who claim they have mental health conditions just need a friend. Oh. And I'm just like, wow. You know, I just heard that recently. Um, somebody, a minister said that um, that uh, a, a therapist is just a paid friend. You know, yeah, nobody and, needs and, nobody needs a therapist. Now, now, just so you know, at the end was a pitch for the church small groups. Was what? So, a pitch for small groups at the church. Oh, oh, so, so was it was a sales pitch. In. Yes, that was his lead in. Uh, for small groups, hey, you're not bipolar. You just need a friend. Now, if you want to see a friend, come Fridays in your local neighborhood at our small groups. Wow. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, um, so when did you know that you were struggling with some of your own mental illness? When did I know it versus yeah. when I took it seriously? When I knew it, um, I knew it when I was around 14, 15 years old. I okay. come out of a uh, abusive um, situation in the home. My mom had remarried when I was nine. And long story short, the man was a pedophile and he was abusive. Mm. And I ended up living with my grandparents when I was 13. And around the time that I was 14, I knew that the nightmares that I was having, I knew that my fear of everything um, you know, I knew that my amygdala was always on. I just didn't know what yeah. amygdala was. I just thought everything was on fire all the time. And yep. I knew that, but I use the term, I'm all sorts of effed up. Mm -hmm. Um, when I took it seriously as an adult, I would go to therapists and I'd play the game, get on meds. When I started feeling a little bit better, I'd stop seeing the therapist, stop taking the meds. And when I started taking it seriously, was uh november of 2019 after a uh very close call in a failed suicide attempt that almost worked mm. i was in icu for a couple days before they moved me to the mental health ward. wow and um that was when i disclosed uh the molestation um that was when i disclosed the levels of the abuse instead of just saying yeah i was walked around as a kid um, and that was when we started tackling PTSD instead of just saying, yeah, generalized anxiety disorder, give him some Xanax, he'll be fine. Right. Uh, but yeah, that was, it, it was, everything has been new because from the moment that I tried to kill myself, I started fighting for my life and I haven't stopped fighting since. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you made it through that, that is, you know, my, my psychiatrist said to me once, he said, there's lies at the bottom of suicide and it's that things will never change. And I will always feel this way. And when you're in that, in that deep hole, you know, I think it's really hard to describe to people how you can get to that point. It, it, it is because for every, I've heard it said, uh, don't know if it was from my grandmother or an expert on NPR. But I've heard it said that for every bad action that we take in life, there's a good intention. And if the intention is you don't want to hurt anymore, you don't want right. to suffer anymore, you don't want to feel this anymore, that's okay. There's just a lot better ways to go about doing it. But 
yeah, I hit a point where I was having flashbacks that were out of control. Uh, I, you know, I mean, why now? Why did it start at middle age? That's a mystery for another day. But, you know, for, from, for like a year, year and a half, um, I had this horror movie going on in my head that I couldn't turn off. Yeah. And when you have flashbacks, emotionally, your brain puts you in two places at once. And that's torturous. Right. Um, yeah. You live, you live in that former existence. Right. And you're doing that while being here. And, uh, you know, an example that I use in the book is I, I had just finished watching a movie with my ex-fiance and I just sat in the car and just started crying because the movie reminded me for whatever reason of the last unicorn. And when I saw the last unicorn as a 12 year old boy, I came home and um, my stepfather was upset. The dishes weren't done. So he held me under the dirty sink water until I couldn't breathe anymore. Mm. And uh, then I had to do the dishes after I frankly vomited on the uh, bathroom or, or the kitchen floor. And um, I was there and I was in the car with her all at the same time. And that just felt bizarre. Yeah. And it was not a life that I wanted to live anymore. Um, but I never told anybody what was going on inside my head. I just kept it inside, you know, shame, embarrassment, uh, emasculation because of what we hold is, you know, what a man should be. Um, whatever the case, I just refused to disclose these things until there was no other choice but to disclose. And so once you were under treatment and um, making progress forward, you decided it was just you were forced to open up and and that became, became a process of healing or? It became a process of healing and it also became a, I can't promise never again, but I hope to God never again. Yeah. Um, because I had, um, you know, my kid was 19 at the time. And that first visit when uh, Harvey came to visit me, that was a gut punch because, you know, they just looked at me and they're like, dad, what the F? And I'm like, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. And um, no, I never want to feel that way again. Yeah. Will, do I still have flashbacks? Yeah. Do I still have a lot that I'm dealing with? Yeah. Shelter in place happened just at the point where I was supposed to per my uh therapist increase my social network and the circle of people that i was in 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 a little uh ptsd uh round robin group um two of them didn't make it through covid but it wasn't from covid they uh. couldn't handle the shelter in place and it's like that's scary mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean i don't i don't ever want to feel that way again and I know the only way I'm not going to feel that way again, or the best way to mitigate that is to take this seriously this time. This time we stay on our meds. This time we don't miss therapy appointments. This time we don't say, I'm having a great month. Bye. Yeah. We're going we're, we're gonna to grow. We're going to learn. And it's beautiful. Coping skills. I mean, I of course, you and I still have our problems, but. I'm not tripping at the end of the night 
from racing thoughts taking me over on this tidal wave that I'm just surfing the ride. Um, I'm in control of it. Right. And um, for me, it's about, it's, I, you know, I mean, I don't want to take a drawer full of meds every day and I don't want to, you know, be seeing a trauma therapist continually and psychiatrist and all that, but it's about quality of life for me. I know mm-hmm. that if, if I don't do these things and my quality of life and my involvement in my family's quality of life diminishes ex- exponentially. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many beautiful adventures. Um, Street photography during during all of this, that's been my biggest coping mechanism, coping skill, um, because that's my connection with other people. Right. That's my able to take in beautiful faces. That's getting out and being social without having to rip off my mask pre-vaccine. Uh, yeah. And I love what that brings to the table for me. Um, and right now, I mean, a, a little thing. An expression that I use a lot is I used to have everything and I appreciated nothing. I've got nothing now and appreciate everything. Every day is a gift. And I truly mean that. And I really, for the first time in my life, I like me. That's huge. That's huge. That's definitely huge. So you were a minister for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. What what was the career shift all about? Because you went from ministry to writing, right? No, there was uh, driving a taxi cab in the middle. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and, th- basically- and then to writing and photography, or was writing and photography always kind of a part of what you did? Well, writing and photography were always a part of it. I mean, as as a child, my dad was a photographer for uh, Marshall Field, Chicago Tribune, a okay. couple other groups of note. Uh, so I grew up in that. And my mom was a chef. Uh, so it was an interesting life. And I was also a child model. So, you know, from the time I was 13, I had a camera in my hand. And I absolutely understood what my dad loved about it. Um, it, it, it paid my way through college, working for local papers and photo studios. And okay. I didn't know, and funny sidebar here, I loved it, but I was encouraged by my youth pastor not to do it because it was an idol before God and I need to be a youth pastor. It was an idol? But it was an idol. Oh, okay. Because I loved it. And so I need to go into ministry because I have this idol that needs to be dispensed with. Uh, but anyway, um, <clears throat> my child came out and um, I was down with it. My now ex-wife wasn't. Uh, so we went through a divorce. Uh, when that's happening in the middle of a church culture, uh, that can be messy. And all these people who I accepted as they were for uh, years and years all decided that they had an opinion on my kid. And I was not having that. Uh, So I took a one-year sabbatical, drove a taxi, and at the end of that one year, the idea of going back into parish ministry and running a church again, I was done. I was just tapped out at that point. I was like, guys, I can't do this anymore. It's been a blast so long, and thanks for all the fish. And um, then uh, I just went on to being a dad. Um, But while I was driving the taxi, 
I backtrack a little bit here. When I was a minister, I was writing columns all the time. I had a blog because what pastor doesn't? Um, <laughs> I, you know, and then I had a column in the paper that was very controversial because the older I was getting, I was getting a little bit more liberal and I was in a very conservative town. Okay. And I would write one thing saying, hey, guys, you know what? Maybe it's OK if gay people get married. Why don't we just sort of get out of the way of that? The president, the Knights of Columbus and the local Southern Baptist preacher, they would spend months writing hate mail to the editor. Now, what they didn't realize is letter angry letters to the editor is gold. They thought they were hurting me, but they were actually feeding uh, readership. Right. So every time I every month I write something else controversial and they would have the same trigger fest, uh, you know, and um, I enjoyed that. So as far as the writing goes, I was writing a blog as I was cab driving just about my adventures. And I had a publisher contact me and say, hey, you want to make this into a book? I'm like, yeah, totally. So we made it into a book and Empathios contacted me and they're like, hey, would you like to write on one of our group blogs? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I'm doing that. And they're like, hey, would you like your own channel? I'm like, okay. And um, so <laughs> as, a, as a writer, I'm, I'm envious of those of those inroads. <laughs> I, I get that. Um, but, you know, it's it's funny. Um, those have been handed to me on a silver platter photography is what I strive for. And those are the doors that I have to bust open. And I think that challenge makes it more fun and makes it more sexy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, talk to me a little bit about the heartbeat of a dad when your kid is going through this. So they are 21 now, 22? 20, going to be 21 in a month. Okay. Correct pronoun? Uh, They, them. Okay. I I got it right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, um, when, when they're going through that, um, at a teenage age and younger and all of that as a dad, um, trying to work with the church and, um, trying to make this conversation happen in a healthy way. What does that feel like? I tried for a long time to host that conversation <clears throat> the thing is, um, in the conservative church, uh, generally speaking, you have a group of people that can only see sin and abomination. Mm-hmm. And in the liberal church, uh, you have a bunch of people that still need to read uh, Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, where he was telling white allies, hey, y'all are doing your white people stuff. But you're telling me to be less rowdy. You're telling me to be less this, less that. You're still trying to control the narrative and you need to listen more. Um, So, you know, I mean, I had one group that said, well, there's sin here. You need to correct your kid. Go to Indiana, do this thing. And then there was um, on the other side, honestly, crickets. Um, Because... I mean, I, I was I was on the front lines of trying to get schools to change and improve their bullying processes, so on and so forth. And the denominations that said, hey, we, we have the rainbow colored flag, we're down. When it comes to actually challenging 
and upsetting the boat in their small town, not down with it. Okay. Um, so in my case, I mean, I was in the middle of it. I had a child that, um, you know, had been a pastor's kid all their lives. And, um, you know, I remember at one point my kid said, you know what? I actually have less pain from the evangelicals than I do the main line. I'm like, why? And they go, well, the evangelicals, they actually think I'm going to hell. So I get why they're hurting me. But these people over here say that they're on our side. And I've seen you because I used to be the president of the uh, of the local town's clergy association. And he was like, I saw you there for them all the time. And they're not here now. We're just on. Mm. And uh, that hurts even worse. Uh, so at that point, I had to pull the ripcord and get out completely. I remember I was at Wild Goose. Uh, if you're familiar with that, it's a big uh, convention in uh, North Carolina. I was there in 2013. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm talking to Frank Schaefer and someone else, and I forget who the someone else was. But she's uh, a, a UCC minister that's also a lesbian. And uh, the two of them, after I just burst out into tears on their shoulders, were just like, you know what? Let somebody else out handle that mantle and be the bridge builder. Go be dad. Hmm. And I checked out of the, um, other than Pathios, I checked out of the religious discussion completely uh, in regards to... Um, in regards to columns, um, especially these last four years, uh, you know, I used to be the evangelical whisperer to my friends, and I can't understand some of the things that are being said now. And I'm not saying that that's all evangelicals, right? In way, shape, right. Or but the ones that are involved in QAnon and uh, they hate and they have uh, 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 implicit and explicit racism. Um, I don't know how to negotiate and deal with them. So I don't, I'm, yeah. I'm busy raising my kid and I, there's a few good voices out there that are really doing the work with the bridge building. I know it needs to be done prior to my child coming out. I had two gay Christians reach out to me about my former position uh, because I used to be anti-LGBT uh, and I didn't know that I was hateful until I had to uh, Christians, uh, Christian, uh, a Christian lesbian and a Christian gay man reach out to me and their discussions softened me. And once you had that softening, I was able to look at things from a different light. Um, looking back now and thinking about some of the stupid questions and statements that I made. Yeah. That was a hard process for them, and that was a brave process. And frankly, it's more courage than I have. I'm taking care of my kid. You know, we we've had to deal with uh, suicidal ideations. We've had to deal with uh, we've had to deal with uh, cutting and depression and anxiety and uh, bullying and moving so that we could be in a school district that had better programs. Um, you know, I've, I don't have a retirement anymore because it's all been spent on legal fees and, and, uh, and other things to protect my child. It's gone. I'm working until I'm dead, (laughs) um, which is fine. But, you know, um, 
And it's not because they're uh, trans. It's because the world isn't kind. Mm -hmm. So is there a, a third way? Let me impose myself into the conversation a little bit. Um, as a minister um, with a, a conservative, uh, maybe, maybe not maybe somewhere in the middle um, denomination now. Um, I, you know, we had a church that had gay, straight, black, white, Latino, white, male, female. You know, we, we kind of had a, a hodgepodge of, of group and it was a, it was a beautiful quilt. Um, I loved it. Uh, but one of the things that the way I used to communicate was to say, you know, you and I may not agree on everything and that's okay, but we're going to predicate this relationship on love love first and then we're going to we're we're going to say that we can agree to disagree so i have to teach the way the holy spirit has led me to teach but i'm always going to love you and we're always going to have conversation and relationship and that kept our kept our stream fresh um and allowed us to have some really healthy conversations and we did have some um we did have some radical disagreement within the group about, about homosexuality, about, you know, relations and, and things like that. But I think we were able to hold that conversation graciously. Um, do you think that's a healthy way to go to be able to say we can agree to disagree? Or do you think that's dodging a, dodging a conversation? I think we can agree to disagree needs to have a uh, limit. Because we can agree to disagree, but we also have to understand the right to swing our arms ends at our neighbor's nose. Um, the example that I will say is, um, you know, it, it's it it we we see it on the internet a lot, but I think it's valid. If um, you and I are having a conversation, and I like bacon, and you know, pork is something that is not within your faith construct, we can agree to disagree about whether or not bacon is something that we should eat. Um, we're going to have a discussion about that. Where the line gets crossed is where it's fine to say, because of your religious conviction, because of your interpretation of the Bible or the Quran or whatever holy book you practice prohibits you from eating bacon, that's great. We can have this discussion. The line is crossed when you tell me that I cannot eat bacon. Okay. Um, so, you know, I mean, whether it's abortion, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's um, whether it's race relations. Um, if the person that I'm sitting across the table from disagrees with me on things, that's fine. But don't don't become a part of the problem. Uh, the, the best way I can describe it is um, there's a lot of things in evangelical Christianity, uh, certain pockets of it to be specific, that I don't agree with. But I'm not running around trying to restrict their ability to practice that faith. Right, right. There are those people in those same pockets that are trying to restrict my child's ability to be able to get a job, to be able to get housing, to be able to get access to medical care, to be able to fall in love and get married and live that life. Um, the church, um, I think it's amazing that when you look at church history, 
I find it um, confusing that some that many denominations have lobby organizations. And have what I find lobby organizations. Oh, yeah, affecting legislation in the uh, in in the public square. When we're in church, when we're among our fellow believers or, and, and our gatherings. Um, we can behave differently than uh, we can in the public square. If me and my child are members of your church, we put ourselves under your authority. Mm-hmm. If we just happen to live in the same town, in the public square, you have no authority over me. Right. So that restri- that that I guess that's a long way of me saying we can agree to disagree, but we also have to understand that there are some things that we have to agree on. We have to agree on the autonomy of human beings to be able to make their own decisions outside the confines of whatever authoritative structure a church or a school or whatever may have. Um, We also have to understand that we can't restrict people um, from um, their lives and their livelihood. Um, Well, you know, our... Our denomination that we were a part of was based on rabbit evangelism, which Mm -hmm. is, which is at, at its, at its worst, it's me arguing and convincing you that you're wrong at its best. It would be just a sharing of what, of what I believe and what I think is good about it, but I've seen it on both ends. And so that, that, ethos kind of carries through into these kinds of discussions that say, I have to convince you that you are wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, and what's amazing to me about that is uh, Azusa Street was this amazing radical thing that also was led largely by women. Yes. And you also had a great ethnic mix. And somewhere down the line, the uh, AG found a way to shut down some of that beauty, but I digress. Um, <laughs> well, the, I, I can't ignore this. The AG separated from the from the Holy Spirit movement going on there because they didn't want to be prayed over by black pastors. Right, so right. that's that's their origin. So yeah. <laughs> now um, they've repented from that and tried to come back from that, but that's where it started. <laughs> but, the, you know, I mean, you know, Azusa was this beautiful thing. And it was this beautiful conglomeration of humanity with an outreach. Um, there's something fascinating about power. Power turns radical movements into we all become Roman guards at some point. Mm. Um, you know, it's like I was a theater geek in high school. Ah. And as a theater geek, we were the kids that didn't have anybody to sit with at the table, uh, at the lunch table. And then we found each other. But what do we do? We create a caste system. There is, you know, suddenly this conglomeration of nerds and geeks determines who's in, who's out. Um, Again, my beef is not with Christianity itself or this denomination or that denomination or that or whatever they believe in the Bible. My problem is once they have had authority and they have had the voice of legislatures and they have had the voice of school districts, 
how they use that voice to impact others. And when that other person is my son, God help you. I, you know, I I don't mean to sound, uh, you know, I mean, it's tough because we literally had to move. And the reason we had to move to a different school system was our mayor and his wife who I used to break bread with are part of a specific denomination and they have influence over the school system and to protect LGBTQ kids from being bullied would be to accept their sin as they saw it or to um, restrict the religious freedoms of people to speak truth to sin. So, but that's not what's happening when you call somebody an FAG or some other Mm -hmm. uh, horrible thing. Um, So again, I mean, can we have those discussions? Yes. Um, But we all need to tread lightly because I don't think we always know when we're swinging our arms too far and busting somebody's Mm -hmm. nose. Yeah. And I think to be able to handle those conversations with both grace and humility and to say, I, I don't know what I don't know, and I, I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to understand. Um, recently, I was preaching for a church and I said something that was very offensive to a group of people. And I, I was completely blindsided by the pushback. And my response is, I am so sorry I did that wrong. And it it can't be, well, let me explain to you 10 reasons why you're wrong to be offended by that. You know, that's, that's not, that's not the proper posture. Right. And so I think, I think it's both grace and humility that um, on every side of the circle that needs to be, that needs to be gone around. Oh yeah. And, and you also have to understand that no matter which side of the fence you're on, the other side is always going to be defensive. Um. And some of that is always going to be over valid things, some of it not. Um, the last year, 2018, that Governor Rauner, uh, the governor of Illinois, was in power. He had a Republican governor, he had a Republican senator. His last year, we got seven laws passed that protected uh, children and LGBTQ adults. And how we did that was it was parents like me meeting with Republican representatives. It was uh, other groups and families and the kids meeting with them and telling them their stories and also giving them the facts. And it was funny because uh, what was a great turnaround in that is that at one point during one of the uh, state subcommittee hearings, some person from Focus on the Family came in spewing their usual uh, uh, talking points. And you had one of the staunch Christian Republican senators sit there and say, actually, that's not true, sir. Mm. I've looked into this after hearing the facts and da, 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 da. Now you've got an evangelical Christian Republican sitting there saying, actually, you're lying to me and you're lying to my constituents and you're lying when you go on the radio. 
because I've actually sat down with some of these families and I've sat down with their physicians and I, I got some different facts. But yeah. what's interesting about that is this was somebody who was humble enough to listen to data instead of, oh, I disagree with it. Ergo, it's fake news. Right. Right. And that's how we were able to get these laws signed into action. That happened from diplomacy. That happened from me making appointments and other parents like me making appointments and sitting down and having these conversations. But you're hard pressed to get uh, those kinds of appointments with ministers of a certain bent. And I've tried. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Well, I think there is, um, as we've pointed out on several sides of this conversation, there are there is vast room for improvement on on how we how we handle one another. So I feel like you and I could talk for hours and not run out of things to talk about, <laughs> but we're on limited time. Actually, I hope we do continue this discussion outside of the podcast. Yes, and I mean that. I would like to. Absolutely, I I agree because this is this is part of. Uh, who I who I am and who I'm understanding myself to be. And I, I want I want to hold this conversation well and love well. And that is part of this podcast. The reason why I wanted to do it was um was to uh be able to say here we're we're different. Our pain is different, but we can come at it with faith and hope and love and and from all different sides and that's okay. The other thing is, is that I own, I own um, the, the website name loving the other. And I, I just had this idea one day, several years ago that we could bring people together from different groups. We could bring um, gay and straight and, and white supremacists and black lives matter. And we could bring people from radically different opposing viewpoints and have a conversation and end up, you know, idealistically end up with a respect of one another and say, okay, okay, we could, we could love you, even though we don't, we don't agree, but we're not going to continue this fight. Um, and that's never materialized that podcast and that website have never materialized, but in the back of my mind with this one is always that one playing in the back of my mind. So it's on the back burner, but it's there. If you ever figure out how to do it right, you'll be a genius. I hope you will get compensation for that, but you'll at least be a genius. <laughs> well, a lot of geniuses are very poor, my friend. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they well, are. this conversation was rich and I appreciate it. The book, again, is called Portraits of Excellence, Coping Beauty. It's available Portraits on Expectations. I'm sorry. Portraits of Expectations, Coping Beauty by Pat Green. Go and find it and enjoy. And let's continue the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. To contact Jill, email jill at jillreilly.org.